Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Adam Back, CEO of Blockstream and Original Cypherpunk. We talk about his cypherpunk roots, how protecting rights changes with technology, and why privacy is important. Adam also tells us about how Bitcoin helps with self-sovereignty. Adam back. How are you these days? Pretty good. Yeah. Anything crazy going on with COVID where you are? Yeah, I mean, the death rate's pretty low. There's been a little bit of a pickup in transmission in Malta, but I think it's generally people are recovering with a high rate of success, probably because of 300 days of sunshine per year and <laughs> Mediterranean diets. I have MD3 is related, but who knows, you know, there are hundred variables and evidently the medical experts do not fully understand all the factors yet. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So you're kind of a famous cypherpunk. Can you tell us the story of how you became a cypherpunk? Like what was like the process? Well, so I was always somebody who's a bit more kind of anti-establishment or want to be, to think independently about things, not take things as stated, not, not want, like, not want people telling me what to do kind of thing. And <laughs> so didn't have a lot of built-in respect for anybody or anything unless they proved otherwise. So of course I was polite about it. So people maybe didn't, you know, find that abrasive, but nevertheless, that's my outlook on life. It doesn't matter who somebody is or what their claim credentials or experience is, let's see the proof of the pudding. Can they deliver? Can they do what they say they do? And so on. And so I think I got interested in cryptography along the way. I did some kind of novice, not very good self crypto to encrypt executables while I was in college. This is in the UK. And college in the UK means probably what the US and Canada would call high school, 16 to 18 A-levels. So they had some computers and I taught myself Pascal and also wrote a kind of self-encrypted binary thingy that would, you could leave things on the shared drive. And when you first, when you run them, you would put in a decryption key and it decrypt itself and then run itself. So it's kind of a way to get some security for my, my program on a shared system, but the, the encryption was kind of dumb. You know, I mean, I knew it wasn't secure, but I didn't know much about applied cryptography at that point. It's probably like 16 or 17 or something. <laughs> and I uh, just playing around. So at university, a friend of mine was uh, doing a master's degree. Uh, university of Exeter has a um, parallel systems group with some uh, distributed computers. So, you know, a huge box with thousands of cores on a high-speed interconnect. So not not like a shared memory computer, but a distributed computer with high-speed interconnects. It was, they had a couple of different generations of transputers, just kind of hardware accelerated interconnect and some simple RISC-like CPUs. And they're not actually RISC, they're stack-based somehow. But anyway, the point being that they were interesting to program. And that's what I ended up doing for my PhD was trying to figure out how to automate programming these things because You'd have to convert an algorithm which would be easier to state on a single core, make it run across multiple cores, not just using shared memory, but using message passing. And your challenge was to keep all the cores busy and not have things slow down when you were using these channels. So anyway, my friend there was trying to speed up the RSA encryption algorithm, which was kind of expensive mathematical computation at the time compared to then CPUs. It was probably the era of like first four, eight, sixes or something. So, you know, 33 megahertz or 66 megahertz, 486 was about as fast as it came, which wasn't very fast. And these transputers were less powerful again, but there were thousands of them. So you could get to do a lot if you could figure out how to effectively farm your workout and have the interim results flow through the system with some buffering so that no cores got stuck idle waiting for the next work packet and things like that. So it's kind of interesting challenge. And... So a little bit after that, um, PGP was released. And so I was reading about that. And so I was like, I know what this RSA part of it is. That's interesting. And found it very interesting that PGP basically you know, changed the balance of power a bit between you know, authority and big business and government systems of control of groups. 
where the individual could send a direct encrypted message to any other person in the world at a distance. And basically, nobody would be able to decrypt it apart from them. And so that was very interesting. I mean, already the internet was, was a bit earlier in its cycle then, but already you could see some struggles for establishment losing their sort of control and influence over media because there were more bloggers and video content coming out. And the governments just basically had to adapt to the new reality and the same for encryption. So that was PGP. And then you know, I, got, I thought that's pretty interesting. And then I looked around for, I, th- I thought it was interesting because of the kind of intersection of mathematically and computer science programming, interesting technology with something that changes the balance of power uh, f- and improves individual control and sovereignty in, in life. So I went looking on the internet for, well, where's more of this kind of thinking and stuff? And that's when I found a cypherpunks list, which probably was only just recently set up at that point. Uh, I think there was some in-person like meetups, like I guess on a weekend in, in a part of Berkeley or something. I went to one of them once when I was in the Bay Area, but most of the time I was in, in the UK at those days and more recently in Malta in Europe. But that was how I got interested and got connected with the Cypherpunks list. And that, you know, started me reading in a massive detour, reading lots of applied crypto papers to scavenge for useful building blocks to build interesting, different security and privacy things for like local encryption, communication security for, you know, emails, text messages, like chat messages, video, anything like that. And and there's some interesting aspects of that because the digital world tends to be more recorded and to provide more Mm. kind of automated digital fingerprints and footprints behind. So it can, it can trip you up. So, Mm. you know, there are cases where people would be just casually chatting online, which would be the equivalent of a water cooler conversation or, you know, somebody socially chatting in a physical world, but because it's a digital world, their instant messaging client has recorded it all. And if you're unlucky, maybe the instant messaging client, even though it has encryption, has digitally signed it all and left a message behind. And then, you know, at some point later, these people fall out or get into a dispute and they start to dig up these, you know, authenticated messages. And Mm. even anti-spam tends to do a bit of this because the anti-spam systems like DKIM, a lot of ISPs use now, it's actually signing the message body in the headers, and most people don't know it. So there's a kind of third-party non-repudiation of all your messages, which you didn't want or expect or necessarily be aware of, and it's sitting there creating problems for you later. There's a side area of cryptography, which is about forward secrecy. So the idea that messages are encrypted, and after the fact, if somebody recorded them, you wouldn't be able to decrypt them if they were presented to you, basically using temporary encryption keys and different algorithms and things. So I did some work on those kind of things and on anti-spam. Yeah, it sounds like almost from the beginning, you understood sort of the significance of all of this data that was out there in the digital world. And, you know, your first project was encrypting executables on disk and so on. Why is self-sovereignty in the digital realm so important in that regard, especially since you first you know, played with Pascal or whatever? Things have changed quite a bit with respect to the internet and so on. Yeah. I mean, the thinking was that, you know, this is not all my ideas, it's just from you know, thinking about it and interacting with people who've also thought about it and looked at what's happening. So, you know, society has developed some kind of respect for liberty, respect for your personal space, for privacy. And it's codified in laws and regulations and social norms. But, and it took, you know, hundreds of years and, you know, wars and unfortunate legal precedents for those norms to be built up. And yet just the side effect of the technology is eroding some of these rights. So if you have a right and there's some kind of automated digital log without any particular intent other than like debugging or something, but it's there, you tend to get stuck into this kind of 
slippery slope situation where you know something extreme happens and a court will you know make a subpoena and get that data but once you know law enforcement becomes aware that that data is exists they start to ask for it for you know less and less relevant things till you know it comes to subpoenaing it to you know catch somebody who's you know let their dog out without a license or something really trivial where people would have originally been outraged if you'd proposed that this data that was accidentally recorded would become so so casually obtainable and you know some of it's obtainable even without any kind of legal authority just by asking basically or is ends up even being sold for marketing purposes or you know companies looking for an extra revenue stream will just sell it without the user's awareness to governments and all kinds of people who want it for various nefarious or just you know commercial reasons to advertise more effectively so it's very insidious and i think people were generally you know, people are generally going about their business, right? So they're not thinking about these things until it goes wrong. And then they realize like, wow, I had no idea that thing was, you know, recording or they promised when they introduced that, you know, I mean, the UK, for example, has a lot of video surveillance cameras in, in public locations. And, you know, when people introduce things, they assume they will only be used for certain things or politicians will sure that that there's an intent but the intent is just you know vague words it doesn't mean anything <laughs> and so basically the cypherpunk outlook is you know what are you going to do about it so you know complaining to politicians lobbying complaining writing articles you know campaigning those generally don't do very much in a world <laughs> where if you want to change something you just de facto do it and so I figured, well, let's just, you know, build the technology to assert our existing rights and societal conventions in the digital space and just go for it. And you know, if people don't like it, well, too bad. It's our right anyway. At least, you know, certainly morally, ethically, social norm in terms of the right to respect and privacy and so forth. And of course, you know, some law enforcement agencies tried to argue to the contrary that they needed it or that, you know, this data would be lost, but, you know, they never had it before. And, you know, they are ultimately public servants. So, you know, they work for us, the individual civilian member of society. And then, you know, I would say that law enforcement's view of the world is in a tiny sort of negative bubble, right? Because they deal with, you know, crimes and, you know, murders and break-ins and vandalism and all, all kinds of, you know, the ugly part of society, which is, you know, presumably like zero point whatever percent. So they have a kind of dark view that they're dealing with this. But, you know, most of society is peaceful and going about its business. So you wouldn't want to, I think the European law tends to be a bit more proportional than UK law. And they have this concept in, in law of proportionality. So I would say the police tend to have a poor uh, kind of balance on proportionality, which is, you know, yeah, you could recover you know, a small percentage more in burglaries or in some particular type of crime. But if you stripped everybody of their privacy, the cost is too high for society. You know, if everybody's kind of self-censoring because they feel like big brother's looking over their shoulder, there are psychological studies showing that that, you know, that's a pressure that weighs on people psychologically. It modifies their behavior. They feel unhappy. So that's not worth it to society. And also there's a risk in all this data recording that you get some kind of malignant or, you know, fascist regime that creeps up on you where society reacts to some event or disaster and introduces more and more draconian laws originally with, you know, intent to deal with disaster, but it just slides into kind of Orwellian super state. So I think it's incumbent <laughs> on us to, you know, to hold the line and use encryption, to use privacy, and, you know, for example, I mean, financial privacy is another part of that. So, you know, there are some moves in some countries to eliminate cash, like even before the COVID, which, you know, caused people to get worried about contacts, passing of variants on paper notes. But 
I'm not sure if that's been clearly analyzed or not, but anyway, it's something people think about. So, you know, but even before that, some countries were trying to remove cash. And I think, you know, the basic privacy in how you spend your money versus other people in society and even the government is important because, you know, if you want to donate to a political cause or, you know, buy a book or watch a movie, it should be nobody's business how you spend your money. Um, and so, you know, that brings to digital cash. And I would say that of the privacy technologies that the cypherpunks were interested to build to, you know, reclaim your kind of physical world rights that have been built up and societal norms have been built up over a few hundred years, that electronic cash was the holy grail, you know, the most important of them, most fundamental, because, you know, if you have privacy of communication and so forth, it all tends to break down as soon as you pay for something. So, you know, you use a VPN, but you pay for it with your credit card or use a, a file server, but you pay for a credit card and so forth, right? So any of the things you might want to pay for, and it's difficult to provide services only using volunteer funded kind of network routers and remailers and tour nodes and file storage services and shell accounts and all this kind of thing. So I think the cypherpunks were pretty interested to see electronic cash deployed and that, you know, that was more technically challenging and, and took a while and some, you know, promising things that ultimately failed for various factors. I mean, typically as a result of a single point of failure, in the protocol, it would be a, a central company that would be running, you know, double spend database, and it would go out of business, or you know, fail to get banking partnerships, or something like that. Mm. Yeah. So you talked a lot about authorities requiring a lot of data and laying claim to sort of our digital trail, if you will. But it's not just you know government authorities, right? There's a lot of corporations. How does that affect our everyday experience? Because, you know, there are companies like Google and Facebook that can pretty much track what you're doing online at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's that's something else that's crept up on people. So I think people were initially thinking about the risks of government, law enforcement, that kind of thing, and the intelligence agencies, which, you know, Snowden blow the whistle on was clearly far more widespread than people ever anticipated and exceeded societal norms and expectations. So it's good to see that reset in, in people's awareness. But corporations are an interesting one. So I think it's not generally by malicious intent, but nevertheless, you know, collecting and amassing too much data in one location is almost evil in itself. You know, So Google got away with a lot with their corporate logo of you know, don't be evil, but effectively they amassed so much data that it's like an evil data repository because, you know, ultimately the audit trail and the indexed, you know, weighted interpretation of people's browsing habits over time, you know, maybe knows more about people than they know about themselves. I mean, it's just spooky how much, how intrusive that is. <laughs> so, and, and like, I think, the interesting observation on that is that you're not paying for it directly. And so people have made this quote that, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And so basically, unfortunately, there's a lot of companies that do monetization by providing free services, but indexing users' habits, reselling it to third parties, monetizing it through different networks. And there's some kind of fantastical graph of all the companies in the ad workflow and there's like a hundred companies or something you know there was used to be double click was pretty big and there's google and facebook and all these different companies but they're all kinds of companies reselling and feeding and processing and extracting different value from that in a value chain and it's it's just super widely shared and very very intrusive so mm. i think you know some people have talked about regret, you know, from the internet protocol communities like the ITF and people who, you know, develop protocols to do name lookups and encrypt web pages and encrypt emails and so on that they they messed up and they should have built in more security and privacy by default at a lower level. So, you know, IPv6 provides some more of those capabilities, but 
there's a lot of company workflows and monetizing users built up around the current infrastructure. So there's an interest by, you know, some people, especially in the wake of the Snowden revelations and realizing that preying on company data sources is part of the intelligence apparatus ingest method, right? To get, to get the data, they would just buy it or steal it from these large companies that are collecting it for, you know, advertisement and monetization reasons. So I think the solution is more, you know, self-hosted kind of software, more end-to-end encrypted software and a rejection of these centralized monetization platforms. I mean, Facebook in particular has developed itself a bad name by just aggressively abusing privacy settings and, you know, there'll be a backlash and they'll turn it down a bit and then they'll creep it up again. So they really, you know, are testing the in-network Monetization is this theory of the switching cost. So, you know, if you've got a cell phone plan, they can charge so much. And the threshold is they charge too much and you switch to a different provider. But it's like, there's an inconvenience factor. So that's the switching cost. But I think Facebook is just basically abusing the line of being so privacy invasive and obnoxious that users leave. And fortunately, most users aren't aware or it doesn't become a pain point for them. But, you know, there is backlash, which which hurts their corporate PR. And so they do back off a bit when people complain. But I think, you know, things like that are quite bad structurally for society because they built up these big databases that could be, you know, obtained by a bad regime that would come to power. So, I mean, there are stories in some countries when there would be a revolution that the the invading army or the intelligence officers that come behind would go and grab like public registers so that they could know who to tax, who to seize property from, figure out a map of who is influential or owns businesses so that they could you know, establish control in society. So, you know, you can imagine the digital version of that, you know, if the government changed, if it's an internal thing or an external thing, these data sources are, just too invasive and dangerous for individual liberty, I think. Yeah, you mentioned that if you're not paying for it, that you're probably the product. And the economics of all of this is absolutely strange, right? Like in the sense that users are essentially paying for these services from Google and Facebook through viewing ads. And that weird monetary incentive there, that misalignment is what causes so much collection of this stuff. So what other ways does money affect this lack of privacy that we have right now? Well, I mean, most things are, uh, I mean, the you know payment space is very tracked too. Certainly mm. any kind of bank account, domestic or international wire transfer, anything that has much privacy is cash, like paper cash. There are some prepaid credit and debit cards, which have, you know, modest amount of privacy. But suddenly anything that's connected online, like, you know, buying things from online stores or eBay or Amazon, using PayPal or debit cards is very tracked and profiled. So again, for monetization reasons, and humorously enough, not often, not to your advantage. So some people had realized that Amazon was actually charging more to repeat customers. <laughs> so you'd be better <laughs> off to create a fresh new profile each time and they try to entice you by giving you a better deal as a new customer. So you'd think you're getting loyalty by you know logging in and having brand loyalty, but it's actually the inverse. And the same for kind of location tracking. So it turns out that you would typically be better off using a VPN or picking a remote location and a new account for many kinds of bookings, like things you would buy online, like, and, and, you know, airline tickets, hotel bookings, you know, travel bookings, and even some products are like differentially priced per location. They're basically looking to charge different people, different amounts of money based on statistical evidence of what those locations will tolerate, I guess. So the financial privacy is, is pretty bad. I think that was your question, right? So, and Bitcoin improves that, you know, too, because 
it has a reasonable amount of payment privacy, at least it's sort of permissionless, not directly and easily tied to your you know, name, social security number, passport number, that kind of thing. That brings up a question for me. Do you think people actually want privacy? Like you and I obviously want privacy and uh, we understand sort of the ramifications of not having it. And like the example that you gave, you know, our financial data is being used against us to charge us more money for the same product and, and things like that. How would you convince the normal person about the importance of privacy or why they should want it? Because like all the data that we have is that most people don't really care. Yeah. I mean, I think people, it's a bit like insurance policy. People often don't care until they realize they should have cared, at which point it's too late. And there've been, you know, occasional sort of side effects, like insiders or criminals getting access to the data and using it to, you know, figure out when somebody's on holiday to burgle their house or to, target someone, you know, there have been cases with police abusing police data. So, you know, every organization has potential different grades of criminal intent inside it just because it's a cross-section of society. So there are risks in building up this data and unauthorized access to the data. So the safest thing is it doesn't exist. I think the other thing that I find quite interesting is the collection of revenue from advertisements is quite inefficient. So I would say that, you know, the annoyance factor to the end user has a higher cost than the value delivered to the to the company trying to monetize it. So probably it's got to a balance because it's, you know, it it's so scattergun and badly targeted that people just get annoyed and frustrated by being bombarded with irrelevant advertisements. That it's just a distraction to getting by on the internet. People, ins- you know, install ad blockers, and then the ad blocking companies start selling bypasses. <laughs> it's actually a business model for ad blockers. And so, you know, what can happen is that you might prefer to spend, you know, ten dollars extra a month to get no advertisements, and maybe that's more than the advertisers were getting out of you, even though you were bombarded with, you know, ten thousand ads in a month or something scattered across different platforms, you know, across all around web pages and on mobile phones, particularly annoying on mobile phones when the screen real estate is already small enough that it's just, you know, extra frustrating to have some of it tied up with advertisements that are irrelevant. So I think that's another argument, right? That if you, you know, to get out of being the product and just straight up pay for the service, you know, so... I think part of it is culturally people don't like to pay for things on the internet. They want free software and free services, right? And so that's the mistake. Now, back in the 2000s, like 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, I worked for a privacy tech company in Montreal, Canada called Zero Knowledge Systems. And they were building a kind of Tor-like network. And at least according to the CEO, Austin Hill, they did some kind of privacy survey and asked people if they would give a DNA example in exchange for, you know, a free hamburger, just to see <laughs> how much people would care about privacy. And the results were not good, shall we say. <laughs> so <laughs> people are maybe not that attuned to privacy risk and a bit more awareness of the, you know, the kind of risks that are building up. Would, would be good. So I think Snowden provided a bit of a wake-up call, but even in the this kind of advertisement value chain and corporate database world, the real picture of just how much, you know, how many petabytes and petabytes of cross-indexed and resold and hundreds of companies sharing it, how invasive that is, is you know, it's just scary. People should be aware of it and taking countermeasures, in my opinion. Hmm. All right. So say that, you know, people listening to this are convinced that they should have more privacy. How does Bitcoin help in that regard? What does it do for privacy and self-sovereignty? Well, I mean, I think it does a few things. So for online payments, you can order something, particularly if it's uh, online content with more privacy. If you're taking you know, physical delivery of a product, of course, you're going to have to give the vendor 
your address to deliver it to, but even that is is better because the payment processor isn't in the loop and so can't you know record and index and resell as another part of the value chain, right? You're just dealing with the vendor and maybe you have a better trust relationship with a vendor. So I think that's interesting and certainly there are people who have you know taken pains to order privacy sensitive or security sensitive equipment in that way, like maybe a hardware wallet for storing Bitcoin on. Maybe you don't want your you know that to be on a bank statement or get indexed and resold too much because those databases leak. It's not just a question of like criminals getting to them. They they have major blunders pretty frequently and they leak huge databases. I mean some of the most infamous ones are, you know, like a third of the population of the US in one shot for a credit agency. IT security failure and things like that. So it's pretty dangerous because the companies are not able to control the security of it, I would say, is a, is a general pattern. So I think, yeah, so you, you get some financial privacy from doing that or, or reduce the number of companies involved in knowing the information to the ones required, which helps. And the other kind of soft sovereignty, which is maybe a little bit less about I mean, it's partly about privacy, but it's a kind of asset protection concept. So I guess, you know, for, for people in the U.S., some people will be aware that it varies. I mean, the U.S. business environment tends to be fairly litigious. So if people feel wronged in any service provision, they will, you know, reach reach for a lawyer and look for financial compensation. And so there are professions where it can be risky that you could become personally liable. So Doctors and dentists are kind of known for that. And I guess they spend a lot on professional liability insurance, but even that may not be enough sometimes. So, you know, one form of asset protection is in some states, for example, Florida, your main house, your your main residence is insulated from those kinds of lawsuits. It can't be, you know, seized or used to pay a fine or penalty or you know, so you won't lose your house basically as a result of, of that kind of lawsuit for damages. And so I guess Bitcoin reduces the, but that's not easy, right? If you don't live in Florida, you know, what do you do? You get a second home that, that's expensive. You know, maybe somebody who's has a dentist practice that's quite successful, that could be a fairly lucrative line of business. Maybe they could afford to do that. But for the average person, the cost of entry is is a bit high. So I think you know, there are the asset protection space is something that's available to, you know, wealthier people who are trying to protect, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe half a million dollars plus or something. But Bitcoin lowers the barrier of entry to you can do that with, you know, a thousand dollars, right? You can, you know, set up a wallet, buy some Bitcoin. And now it's, um, you know, depending on how you bought the Bitcoin, people may or may not know you have it. You know, if you bought it for cash with local Bitcoins, then it's not obvious that you have it. So that's a kind of disaster fund insurance policy in a pinch. But, you know, even if people know you have it, at least they can't preemptively seize it. If you've got self-custody, they have to, you know, come and demand it. And of course, there are valid reasons why, you know, law enforcement might demand money from somebody. But I think it's a better precedent for kind of societal balance that they have to talk to you about it <laughs> or prevail well, in a well, court that, case. The burden of proof is on them and not on you. Right. Because like particularly, again, in the US, not to pick on the US, I'm sure there are many other countries with similar, uh, similarly egregious kind of imbalance of establishment versus individual control and sovereignty. But in the US, they have this sort of synthetic construct that law enforcement can sue the inanimate object of you know a pile of cash or a bank account and so they will start a court case by seizing all your money and at that point you can't afford a lawyer so you're already disadvantaged and your adversary is is like a government with infinite budget and you know so some police departments would basically get to keep some of the impounded money and some of the money is impounded incorrectly but the victims of this money impounding malincentive lack the funds to get it back, you know, because all their money got frozen and it takes <laughs> lawyers to get it back. It takes lawyers' determination and persistence to get it back. And the people who do get it back 
but it t- it's very expensive and it takes a long time. And in the meantime, they may, you know, their business may fail because they don't have the cash flow to keep it operating, things like that. So I think the kind of, you know, the step of the asset protection aspect is interesting because, you know, they may know you have it because they can see the, your, you know, you filed your taxes, you showed any gains you took, and possibly the exchange may self-report your transactions. That that kind of happens in a lot of bank accounts and trading accounts. They get self-reported by the institution to the respective tax authorities. So they may know you have it, but they still got to come to you to get it. Unless, of course, you leave it on the exchange, then the same kinds of uh, <laughs> liens and freezes can happen as normal. So this is why I think you know, self-custody is interesting and self, it can be difficult to self-custody, you know, larger amounts because it has a cash-like property. But you can do some smarter things like multi-sigs where you have a security service provider that provides you similar kind of, sort of security assurance and services with two-factor authentication, you know, potentially even involving humans or custodians as you know, a bank or a brokerage account, but where you have one of the keys. So, you know, they can't take the money preemptively without you co-signing. And in the case of the green address security model, so green address is a Bitcoin wallet by Blockstream. It has a kind of hybrid where it's multi-sig with a security service normally, but if you accidentally lock yourself out by losing the two-factor authentication, after a period of time, a default 90 days, you get back single custody. So in that way, you get the benefits of kind of separate security service with two-factor authentication methods that are common in banking and online brokerage accounts. But, you know, Blockstream particularly can't be ordered to freeze your money because, you know, even if we stopped co-signing it, you'd be able to take it yourself after 90 days. And there's nothing much, you know, nothing we could do about that. That's, you know, part of the smart contract on the blockchain and you have your pre-signed transactions. So then it's down to the kind of decentralization and finality permissionlessness of the uh, Bitcoin system. So I think, you know, some sort of uh, investors and institutional investors in Bitcoin have talked about it as the sort of asset protection kind of asset, like so a a commodity that has uh, asset protection features. So that's, that's a kind of interesting concept in itself. So it's returned to kind of more bearer concept in a world where fewer things are bearer. And, you know, I guess COVID is also making people less keen to handle paper cash generally, at least interim until that situation resolves itself. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is basically if you have a trusted third party that leaves you vulnerable to having your assets seized or confiscated, you know, through civil asset forfeiture and many other things, but actually possessing it as a bearer instrument that makes it much easier to have self-sovereignty over your own stuff. Right. Uh, Not to mention privacy. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly people in in history and, you know, people, even our generation or the previous generation who, you know, had to summarily leave countries for, you know, war or political regime change reasons. I have some friends who left uh, Hungary and what well, his, his parents did, you know, it's a guy about my age and, you know, they had to leave for what they could take out with them and, you know, start a new life because the regime change was not good. So, you know, the ability for people to hold onto and retain the fruits of their labor is, uh, you know, an important sort of quality of life and very fundamental thing, right? And I guess that brings to another Bitcoin-like property, which is a bit nascent, but is the store of value concept. So fiat currencies like government-issued currencies, US dollar, euro, Swiss franc, British pound, are prone to inflation over time. And historically, they haven't actually lasted that long between defaults, like maybe 50 years or something. So people look around today and they think, what do you mean? You know, you know, these currencies have been here for, you know, generations, but actually the average, I mean, we're looking at the more stable subset of them, but the average is pretty bad. And, you know, Wences Caceres from Zappo um, 
kind of Bitcoin service provider and custodian uh, group in Argentina, I think, and you know says that his parents were financially wiped out twice during his youth due to currency catastrophes, uh, economic catastrophes that like rapidly devalued the, the the currency people had. So you know the ability to protect your assets from currency devaluation is an important thing too. And that's kind of hidden form of taxation. I, I would assume that governments for the most part not trying to do that, but it's a side effect of going too far with the tax when the economic conditions get tough, I guess, getting a debt ratio too high and then losing control, printing money. And it's happened like many times. So now, of course, it's also fair to say that, you know, mostly people don't store money as cash if they want to hold on to its value for the longer term. Like any financial advisor will tell you, if you've got some money that you are prepared to invest for three to five years, you probably want to put it in stocks or property or something else, right? And that's true, but it's also something that disadvantages the less wealthy segment of society because they are more cash-based. So I think you know this erosion of value is a kind of tax that is unevenly affecting people depending on their economic situation. So Bitcoin is a way to protect against that. Now, of course, Bitcoin is like price volatile. So for the moment, that's also a, you know, don't invest more than you can afford to lose kind of asterisks beside it. But it's it's heading in the right direction. And there are certainly people who invest in gold for this kind of reason, at least an allocation as a hedge against rapid currency fluctuations. Now, so I think Bitcoin is an interesting promise for that in the future. Hmm. Yeah, not only sort of protection against confiscation, but protection against inflation is the self-sovereign thing here. And you're right. It's a lot more uh, robust to, you know, government interference in that way. And you can do it in much smaller chunks than real estate or something like stocks, which can be seized. Uh, And you get kind of both at the same time, which is great. How do you see privacy and self-sovereignty concerns changing, especially in light of, you know, COVID and, you know, all that's going on in the world right now with protests around the world and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a dangerous time really for financial privacy because, you know, it's a time when politicians can, with more plausibility than normal, say that they need some emergency measure or to do something dramatic like print an enormous amount of money or institute some temporary controls. And people are much more inclined to go along with it if they see a present danger. And so there are historic precedent precedents which have ended badly with these kind of things, right? So and I think there's even one today where, you know, people were commenting that, wow, what that country just did basically dissolved its parliament or something, <laughs> effectively gave, you know, created a new emperor or czar or something. Now, I mean, they would dress it up and say, oh, well, it was temporary, you know, it was exigent circumstances, but nevertheless, they just destroyed, you know, hundreds of years of kind of democratic institutional cross-checks and controls. So it's a pretty dangerous time for individual liberty, really, I would say. And it's also a difficult time economically. A lot of people are, you know, losing their jobs, relying on temporary government handouts or, you know, emergency money. And if they have assets that they're trying to protect, it's a very uncertain economic climate to protect them within. You know, the stock market has uh, counterintuitively been going up and mm-hmm. you know, people are looking at companies that, by many metrics should be, you know, worth a lot less, heavily discounted, shall we say, because the sectors they're in are on standby. All their staff, you know, laid off or on standby and all their equipment, you know, like airlines, travel, stuff like that, all kinds of sectors. And yet, you know, the prices keep going up. So, you know, you can be opportunistic and follow it up, but you've also got to wonder when does that stop? Like, is it up for the reason that people are just looking for somewhere to preserve value? Like too many people are doing that, so they're artificially bidding up 
the uh, PE multiples, you know, so they're placing a much higher multiple value of the company's earnings than usual because of use it, sort of having a second use of stocks as a way to preserve capital, but in a sense that there are too many buyers, so they're bidding up the price. So you've got to wonder if that's going to have a correction. I mean, at some point it has to, right? So investing in the stock market at these levels is a bit scary, and real estate looks a bit uncertain too because there may be more people working remotely after this. And so you know, particularly big city real estate is that's artificially high because of, you know, local job markets may be at risk. So I don't know. I think uh, physical gold and gold ETFs are up. Warren Buffett apparently bought a big gold mining company and characteristically after saying very negative things about gold being an unproductive asset for many years. So we live in interesting times, I think. (laughs) So we have a lot of governments and corporations that are continuing to erode our privacy and self-sovereignty. How do you see that coming to an end? Will it come to an end as we, you know, progress along the Bitcoin path, if you will? Will it come to an end? I don't know. I mean, it depends on uh, people's behavior, I guess, you know, whether they learn lessons and take defensive action. I think the, you know, temporary, well, they claim temporary, but the impositions relating to COVID are things that have been unpopular and noticed. So, you know, it seems like at least there's a, the society is paying attention and would like to dig in and ensure that that, that remains temporary, right? And I guess there is even people who have, you know, uh, taken local governments to court over issue, you know, over control and so on. So in some countries, they're able to kind of use established legal system but it, it's difficult, you know, the COVID thing is not an obvious situation about what the right thing to do is. All right. So you're obviously CEO of Blockstream, but from a cypherpunk standpoint, what are some of your long-term goals for Bitcoin as opposed to CEO, I guess? Yeah, well, I mean, I like to try and uh, mix those things a bit because... <laughs> You know, Blockstream is quite Bitcoin correlated, you know. So the company has a lot of its balance sheet in Bitcoin. All of the employees are paid partly in Bitcoin at, at fixed Bitcoin rates, like so much Bitcoin per month. So that was, we set it up that way at the beginning to, in negotiation with the investors, to make sure we were Bitcoin aligned because we could see that a company. I think we were the first company to start contributing at company level to Bitcoin internals. And so we could see for ourselves being involved with Bitcoin before, that would be something that would be, you know, would cause people to ask questions because we would ask them ourselves. So we figured, you know, let's do what we can to protect against that becoming a problem under, you know, future different management, let's say that kind of uh, situation. So we've got quite a few you know, the investors we had were quite interested in Bitcoin and internet governance and uh, were quite accommodating. So we've got a few things in that regard. But I mean, speaking personally, I'm, I'm quite interested in seeing Bitcoin's privacy and fungibility improves. So it's one of the limitations of Bitcoin compared to the previous electronic cash systems like David Trom's electronic cash protocols and Stefan Brand's electronic cash protocols, they have very good cryptographic privacy, like full unlinkability. So the operator, I mean, but they're centralized, but you know, the operator of their double spend database cannot uh, link a deposit to the corresponding withdrawal or like, a, you know, to the previous spend, let's say in a more distributed way of speaking. So Bitcoin doesn't have that assurance you know, there's some ambiguity, some privacy, and it's a bit more pseudonymous, people would say, but it's 
it's based on coins. Wallets are not directly visible at network level. So it has a lot of kind of best effort stuff. And typically each major release or two of Bitcoin introduces some incremental privacy or fungibility improvements. You know, for example, Schnorr signatures and Taproot particularly helps with fingerprinting, with not disclosing contracts unless the escape clause has to be used. So that's another sort of improvement. There have been some network level improvements as well over time, but it still has you know, work to do to catch up with the previous systems. So, I mean, that, that was the, you know, when I got actively involved in Bitcoin, my observation was that the privacy looks a bit weak in, this, in the way I described. And so I set about, you know, my free time trying to figure out ways to incrementally improve it because Bitcoin did solve, you know, the fundamental problem with the previous systems, which is they had, at protocol level, central points of failure that inevitably failed. So I figured, well, maybe you can have centralized systems with perfect privacy, but evidently don't survive very well. This Bitcoin being decentralized should survive very well. Maybe we can, people at large can find a way to improve its privacy and crypto fungibility, which I mean this kind of perfect unlinkability property that the previous systems had. So that was the context in which I first proposed uh, confidential transactions, which is a way to encrypt the values of a transaction so that somebody can still run a full node and verify that all the important metrics of transaction and block validity are preserved, but they don't get to see how many Bitcoin are in a UTXO and how big the change in the payment is. I mean, the change in the payment are not always distinguishable, but they become more distinguishable if you can see the the amounts, right? So... We ended up incorporating that into Liquid. So, you know, if people are interested to try out confidential transactions, they can install the Green Dress wallet and set up the, it has two profiles, one for Bitcoin and one for Liquid. So if you set up the Liquid profile with a seed and, you know, follow the guides on how to swap Bitcoin for Liquid Bitcoin and back, you can then transact Bitcoin uh, with confidential transactions and you can also transact other things like uh, Tether US dollars with the same property. And actually at network level, depending on how you transact and if you have a transaction with multiple assets in it, it, it can become ambiguous to the network level whether an asset is even Bitcoin or Tether or something else. So you get ambiguity about the asset type as well as the asset amount. So that's pretty cool. So, you know, I'd like to see... In principle, something like confidential transactions eventually make its way into Bitcoin. And that was the initial, you know, it was proposed before sidechains and liquid was ever a a thing and before Blockstream was set up. So, uh, but I mean, there are a number of kind of multi-tailed technical trade-offs that I think ideally need to be improved, like the space efficiency and the guarantees about inflation prevention and quantum computers. There are lots of kind of interesting and tricky trade-offs in play. And But, you know, the technology is improving over time, right? So bulletproofs made the proofs quite a bit smaller. You can see on Liquid, if you look on a block explorer, that a confidential transaction is typically about 10 times bigger than a non-confidential one. But because the fee rate on Liquid is 0.1, Satoshi's per byte minimum. A typical confidential transaction costs about one or two cents US dollars. So it's pretty low cost for the moment. You know, for the moment being, it's just, you know, uses a fee market like Bitcoin. It's just not at capacity. So there's not much fee contention for now. So it can be, you know, cheap and fast (laughs) as well as confidential. So that's one type of confidentiality, but it would be very nice to see a way to get stronger linkability, you know, cross-linkability protection, sort of unlinkability between inputs and outputs. And Liquid doesn't do that. You know, confidential transactions doesn't do that. It makes things a little more private and ambiguous because from the outside, you don't know how much is being transferred or maybe what what type it is even. So it's a bit harder to correlate which transactions might come from the same wallet, that kind of thing. But ultimately, you know, there are inputs and there are outputs and you can see them. 
So, you know, there are techniques to, to do this, but today they are, you know, computationally expensive, result in large proofs, or rely on novel crypto assumptions, which are risky, you know, which have significant risk of in-the-field security gotchas at the algorithmic level over time, or even the implementation level because they're complicated. And that's happened in a, a couple of times in like privacy coins, you know, where people have had an implementation bug. And I think in one case, a bug in a, a pre-existing paper that they'd implemented according to the paper was actually flawed. And I think one of them actually suffered unrecovered inflation and the price went up because cryptocurrency is irrational <laughs> at times. <laughs> I won't name the altcoins because I don't want to like advertise them. Don't like altcoins very much. I prefer kind of, I think Bitcoin itself is a very interesting innovation for society and self-sovereignty. And I tend to think of altcoins as a kind of dilution of that effect and a distraction. So I think that they will ultimately sort of get eroded and become less popular. And if you look at them over time, that tends to be the case anyway. You know, like three or five year time frame, most of them kind of get delisted, cease to be maintained as their promoters move on to the next next one. Hmm. All right. So final two questions. First one is five years from now, what's your best and worst case scenario for Bitcoin? Well, best case scenario is, you know, more fungibility. I think self-extensibility is interesting. So, you know, Blockstream, we started investing into formal security for Bitcoin smart contracts and self-extensibility, which is uh, simplicity. Again, it was something that predated Blockstream, originally proposed in a Bitcoin context, simplicity, by Russell O'Connor in, I think, 2011 or something. So he's been working on that for a few years now, and we made a Bitcoin sort of reg test release, so like a developer release of Simplicity on Bitcoin and Simplicity on Elements, which is the open source platform that Liquid is built using. And we hope to get that into Liquid late this year uh, so people can try it out. But, you know, again, the interest is eventually something like that could make its way into Bitcoin. Obviously, it takes a lot longer with something complicated and large like that. So maybe five years, optimistically, could see that. And that would make... Even something like Schnorr signatures would be wouldn't even need a soft fork. You could just you know just another script basically just do it and say cache now input another script. So it gives you a lot more self extensibility, but with formal provability. I'd like to see a lot more crypto fungibility, more scalability because Bitcoin is great, but we want many people to be able to enjoy it, and traders tend to get, uh, they have time sensitivity because they're trying to move money to trade. And so they tend to push the fees up because they're not very price sensitive. And that tends to make things difficult for people trying to go about their self-sovereign sensor-resistant payments use cases. So I think it'd be ideal if there's more scalability and maybe more layer two specialized to different things. So if you think about Lightning as micropayments in retail, payments that are faster. Liquid, it's kind of, you know, people use things for what they want to use them for, but basically it's designed to meet the requirements of traders. So you get some confidentiality, faster transactions, they happen within two minutes final, and support for multiple assets. So you can do arbitrage with US dollars, atomic swaps, that kind of thing. But I think there's room for more layer twos. So for example, a layer two that adds more crypto fungibility into Bitcoin in a side chain or something else. One of those being something in that direction, for example, being state chains. So it's a lot, you know, to get things like this to end user usability takes quite a lot of time and work because when you get down to it, and we experienced this with Liquid, and I guess other people also experienced it with Lightning as, as we did, that you have to build many things, you know, so you have to get integrations with exchanges and other payment providers. So Liquid is integrated into BTC Pay Server now, which is very nice. You need wallets. So we implemented the green wallet. There are now a couple more wallets by third parties. 
You need integration in hardware wallets so that people can get security. That takes time for a new protocol. And uh, you know the protocol itself has to be, you know, validated and code reviewed and protocol reviewed and go through a few iterations. So, you know, five years could be a time frame within which we might see, you know, an additional major layer two for fungibility or scalability or both. You know, so that could be interesting. And you know, for for Blockstream's hat on, we're doing a lot with uh, satellite things. So I think with sort of sat- Bitcoin over satellite. So I think within that kind of time frame, we'd have that roadmap a lot further advanced and be able to do some more global Bitcoin things. So we're actively working on things always on that on that front. All right. So what about the worst case scenario? I don't know if you. Oh yeah. So that. the worst case scenario. I mean, I think the. You know, the kind of black swan risks are kind of regulatory backlash. I think those risks actually may be more price than adoption because I would say that Bitcoin has reached a bootstrap adoption level, by which I mean that even if outlawed, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who could, you know, OTC trade them some Bitcoin for cash. At this point of deployment, so it would be, you know, sort of more of a gray market kind of thing. But as we know, gray markets can survive and thrive. And in fact, I think something like half the world's economy is gray market. So it's not necessarily a barrier to to use and adoption. It depends on the culture and people's kind of level of caution, which varies by culture. But you know, obviously, it would. If there was a regulatory backlash or something that degraded the fungibility between exchange, you know, Bitcoin on exchanges, trading on exchanges, and cash Bitcoin. So you could think about that happening in gold, where there's sometimes a discrepancy between physical gold and gold ETFs. In that case, because people think that the gold ETFs are too rehypothecated. But in this case, it could be like, you know, a fungibility breakdown between physical Bitcoin. And exchange-traded Bitcoin, it's not great, but I think Bitcoin would power through that too because there's it's ultimately down to economics and people have an economic need and Bitcoin solves it. And it's also a need that is an inherent differentiated value proposition. So I think banks can't and won't compete with it because you know, they can't provide permissionless finance because regulations prevent them. And so there's always that case for Bitcoin. That's a niche for Bitcoin. Okay. All right. So 20 years from now, how do you think Bitcoin affects people's privacy and self-sovereignty? Well, I think it's a whole brave new world, isn't it? So <laughs> I think, you know, a lot could happen in that time frame. You know, society, I think, has been significantly, if you look at previous 20 years, you know, with rapid adoption of the internet and that, you know, changing people's personal habits, information habits, social habits, geopolitical views, even, you know, revolutions were considered to be significantly affected by access to international news, ability to, you know, use social media to coordinate a local revolt or political overthrow or protest. You know, that's just people's ability to instant message or something, even without encryption. So, you know, imagine what uh, free market money could do to geopolitics. And, you know, things are already, so the, the kind of global economic status quo was not that healthy since 2008 already. So while COVID has kind of sort of been an event, the the things that are unfolding are partly stored, you know, quantitative easing hadn't unrolled from 2008, for example. So it's kind of stored up problems. So, you know, I think it's a kind of uh, interesting moment where even a new international accord on money could arise just out of necessity. You know, so we've got a Bretton Woods agreement where the, you know, international currency pegs changed and there used to be a link from currencies to gold not so long ago, right? 
So something like that might arise even. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff up for grabs. And if governments fumble things, people will just take things into their own mind and into their own hands and use different asset class to transact internationally. So, you know, the period during which a currency holds its world reserve currency status has historically, you know, not been that long. And so it might even be within that kind of time frame that it could change. Of course, that's hard to predict, but, you know, there are a lot of headwinds for uh, national currencies and reserve currencies right now. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter, Adam3US, and I have a webpage with some various cypherpunk projects over the years, which is cypherspace.org, C-Y-P-H-E-R-S-P-A-C-E.org, and uh, Blockstream products, you know, like Green Address, Liquid, things like that. If people look for that, it's at Blockstream on Twitter or Blockstream.com, and there's a list of products on there. Okay, well, thanks. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Adam can be found at Adam3US on Twitter, and his company is at Blockstream.com. Until next time, Fiat Delenda Est.